Gomez. Caramia? Marvelous news. I'm going to have a baby. Right now. Nurse, how close are the contractions? Every 15 seconds, Doctor. Are you in unbearable pain? Is it inhuman? My darling, is it torture? We. Oui. Mrs. Adams, would you like anesthesia? No, thank you. But do ask the children. It's a boy. It's a girl. Go ahead! What news? Father, what is it? It's an Adams. Welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Brell, and joining me as always is my co-host, David Carter. Hello, David. Hello. How's it going? It's I have fine. nothing clever to say. <laughs> I'm just... It's fine. I mean, I only worked one day last week, so. Ah, uh, lovely. I, I, so I started training at a part-time job for the holiday yeah. last week. And then I don't know if you call, like, editing the podcast is like work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm also like watching um, YouTube cooking videos while I'm editing the podcast. So I don't know if I consider it work in the same way. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if I technically I worked one. I worked two days last week. So nice at uh, at my new shiny part time job at Hopscotch. So if you want to come hear me take your order muffled through a mask, come to Hopscotch. Do you work the window? <laughs> I mean, I've worked, yeah, I worked the register. I've done, like, okay. they train me to do, there's really just two jobs during a pandemic. It's really yeah. just the register or you make the coffee. Gotcha. Not a lot of gray area in there. We usually order online, so I'll have to come to the window instead. Oh, that means I get to see your order as it comes in, and I can do weird stuff to your cup when I hand it to the person to make the order. <laughs> oh, yeah, that sounded Ew. wrong. I mean, I can, like, draw... <laughs> Just means I can draw dumb stuff on your cup. That's okay. it. Okay, <laughs> that'll be fine with. I'm not gonna like dunk your cup in the toilet or something. Like that. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> but this week we are very excited to, uh, as I was talking to our guests off microphone about this, an episode that I think I've wanted to do on this podcast since the podcast started, but had no good excuse. Yeah. Wait, what's your excuse now then? It's a pandemic. I can do whatever I want. It's Outback Steakhouse on this podcast. No rules, just right. Uh, Is that their tagline? (laughs) Yeah, that's their tagline. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, so we will be talking about the uh, 1993 film, Adam's Family Values, the sequel to the... uh, Weird surprise success movie, The Addams Family, from 1991. I don't know if you consider this movie a cult hit or not, but kind of is. Didn't really make a lot of money on it in, when it came out, but we'll talk about that more later. But getting to that, first, we have got to talk about what is playing at the IU Cinema next week, because we didn't have a schedule this week, but things are back in action, baby. So yeah. please join us there. Elizabeth, what we got going? What's cooking? 
Uh, so this week we have one new streaming film and one virtual event. Uh, so both will be on Friday, December 4th. So our streaming film starts on December 4th, goes through December 18th. Uh, it is the 2020 film Another Round, um, directed by Thomas Vinterberg, uh, which um, stars Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen. Um, yes. This is going to be a $12 virtual ticket, but IU Cinema will get half of that. So think of it as like helping IU Cinema, but also enjoying a funny movie, I guess. Um, <laughs> you don't know. You're not sure of the content. It's supposed to be a comedy, I'm assuming, based on the okay. premise. I haven't seen it yet, as we won't get it okay. till the fourth. Um, but I guess there's this theory that modest inebriation opens up your mind to the world and diminishes your problems. And this kind of plays on that quote unquote theory uh, where Martin, who is Mads, uh, and three of his other teacher friends are all teachers in high school. They test this theory as an experiment to keep constant level of intoxication throughout their day while they teach high schoolers. Great. So it sounds like a comedy, <laughs> but I could see it taking a turn. So we'll see. Yeah. Also, a a, a pretty believable premise. I think mild inebriation <laughs> does does leave you a little bit more open to things. So yeah, eh, you know. Yeah. So that's a little bit. It sounds a lot li- more lighthearted, kind of fair for this December season. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that day uh, is our virtual event. Uh, Seven p.m. is coded biased which are, it's a virtual event, so it's going to be free. Um, this is a documentary that reveals the groundbreaking research of MIT researcher Joy Bulamwini. That's okay. how I think her name is said. Um, proving that facial recognition algorithms have the power to disseminate racial bias at scale. So this is going, this premiered at 2020 Sundance, and there's going to be a post-film Q&A with you at people. There are four different people in technology and research who are going to be participating in a Q&A about all of this stuff and facial recognition, etc. Now, like, so can I join into the Q&A, but can I just ask questions like, uh, how do I set up my Outlook? You can. can Those questions will not be passed along. (laughs) Wait, you're telling me you're not going to pass along my question about how to get Outlook on my iPhone or how to uh, log into my how to log into the Wi-Fi? I don't know that I'm the one going to be doing it, but I can guarantee that anyone who sees that question is going to be like, roll their eyes and be like, "This is not the time." Yeah, you send them a family. I just wanted special treatment. (laughs) (laughs) We'll answer it privately for you. No, we're not going to answer those questions, but... Okay, so bring better questions than that. <laughs> yeah, maybe the, watch the movie first. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'll have free access to the movie, and then we'll talk about it in the Q&A, so... Yeah, this is a great opportunity. A lot of the virtual screenings that have been happening all over the country are usually paid, so this is, uh, you know, come and just watch a free movie. Chill. Yeah. Be in your computer. Send emails while you watch the movie. Don't do that. You should watch the movie. (laughs) But yeah, so that's all we got for this week. Great. Well, with that, I think what we're going to do now is I think we're going to introduce our very special guest uh, for this for this episode. 
She's a returning guest from our Directed by Women episode. Uh, she is an experimental filmmaker and IU Cinema contributor. She is the only other biggest Agnes Varda fan I know in town. She is a renowned video essayist whose uh, work is featured uh, in on Criterion uh, with some regular basis. She She's shaking her head no, but I do know that Criterion has featured her work at some point. Am I wrong about that? You can talk. I've never made a video for Criterion. What do you mean by featured by? Oh, but didn't you, uh, didn't they, a uh, like the roundup or something? Like they were like, uh, oh, check out these things on the web this week. Oh, that might have happened where their blog picked up one of my yes. A Place for Film videos. Yes. I think it's happened, it happened at twice at least. However, putting this out into the world, I would love to make a video essay for Criterion. And so if Criterion would like to commission a video from me and be more than happy to contribute to their website. And you know who just said that? Who uh, deserves a shot at a Criterion video? We have Laura Ivins back on the podcast. Hello, Laura. Hello. <laughs> I gotta say, the look on her face when you were saying that, and I was just in panic. I was like, what is happening? I'm 85% <laughs> sure. I remember like being on Twitter and being like, uh, check out all these things. And it was like tweeted out by the Criterion blog or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, Laura. I just didn't want to misrepresent it and have Criterion come and be like, we have never heard of this woman. She's never made no. anything Okay, <laughs> That is some fair clarification because, yes, you have not had a featured video essay on a Criterion disc or the channel. Though I would love to. I think they should give you the shot. I think they should. <laughs> it's oh funny because our upcoming virtual monthly movie roundup is low-key me. Like, I just want to talk about the movie because it's underrated. But it's like, also me, it's like, I feel like Criterion could possibly pick this movie up someday. And I'd like to write that essay. So we'll see about that. But Laura, welcome back. Yeah, How are you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you guys doing? All things considered, pretty good, actually. I don't know. I'm in a good mood. I didn't do any work this week, so I'm very well rested. <laughs> I slept in this morning. That's wonderful. I, I developed 35 millimeter film for the first time this week, so I'm feeling like a champion. Ooh. Yeah, I've never done it before, and I just I thought, well, it's pandemic. I should learn something new, and I did. That is crazy. Most mm. people learned how to bake sourdough. You learned how to develop 35 <laughs> millimeter film. Yeah. <laughs> Cannot do sourdough. <laughs> Cannot do sourdough, but <laughs> it's a give and take. You can only do one. Laura, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have you on this podcast. I had known that you were a big fan of this movie for a very long time. So, like, essentially, when we pitched wanting to have you back on, and I said you can talk about whatever you want. The, it's it's the it's the holiday. There's not a lot of very specific screening happening at the cinema. When you had mentioned Adam's Family Values as one of the topics of discussion you were interested in, I was like, well, no, duh. Like, I know, like, I follow her Twitter. This makes complete and total sense. So, I'm very excited to gab about that with you. But me and Elizabeth, before we gab about you with that, we want to know what you and us watched this week. So please join us there. So I spent the first half of the week in Red River Gorge. So I haven't watched a lot, but we did manage to get a movie in last night. This movie's called Charlie. I don't know if anyone has heard of it from this year. It is Josephine Decker's latest film. Oh, you said Charlie. Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have. Yes. I have heard of this movie. I'm very excited to watch this. Yeah. 
which after Madeline's Madeline, I am going to watch anything that Josephine Decker does. Um, so I was super excited. And this movie does not disappoint. Um, it is a quote-unquote biopic, sort of, in a way, of Shirley Jackson. It's actually just, like, it's not, like, based on real events. It's kind of, it's based off a fictionalized book about Shirley Jackson at the time that she was writing one of her stories. So it's not real, but it kind of gives, <laughs> it like is real characters. Like these people existed, or at least Shirley and her husband existed. It doesn't have her kids in the film. And she had like four kids at this point, I think. But it kind of gives a look into the process of an artistic person an artistic woman specifically in that era. It sounds a little more straightforward than a Josephine Decker film usually is, but she, you can definitely, her fingerprints all, all over it. It's yeah. kind of dizzying and dreamlike, and I loved it a lot. So I highly recommend it. Isn't Michael Stuhlbarg play her husband mm-hmm. in this movie? Sorry, I, I don't have like a Wikipedia. professor. Yes. Uh, and Classic. it's kind of, isn't it kind of also about their like sexual relationship a little bit as they're like in this confined yeah, environment so together. I feel like it's not really spoilers because Shirley Jackson is a real person and you can read about her anywhere. But like yeah. he wanted an open relationship and she was just kind of like very reluctant, but let it happen anyways. Okay. It does. It's very, it's a sexual film for sure. And where's that? Is that streaming on Hulu? Mm-hmm. Odessa Young and Logan Lerman play a young couple that live with them. So mm, interesting. I mean, yes, Josephine Decker, huge fan. Madeline's Madeline, my top five of the year came out. I don't know. I'm excited to watch this movie. I just want it play. I think it played Sundance, like pre-pandemic. Yeah. I think the idea is that this is going to be Elizabeth Moss's year, part two. Mm -hmm. Like she's going to be coming off of like her smell from the previous year, and then this, and then Invisible Man. But that didn't happen. But I think the Oscars are still happening this year, so hopefully she gets one lead actress like nomination finally. that'd be nice yeah she plays unhinged very well yes very very well <laughs> that sounds great thanks a lot elizabeth um laura yeah what did you watch this week i i've been revisiting my dvd collection and so um i'm in west i'm in the wes anderson section right now so i watched um i watched the royal tenenbaums this week with Anderson's commentary track. I have the criterion criterion of that one that I bought way back in 2002. Yeah, it was, I've, I've had that DVD for almost 20 years now and never watched with the commentary track. I love it so much. I always just watch the movie and always think, well, next time I'll watch it with the commentary track. So this time I was like, oh, I should, I should just do it. I should watch the commentary track. And it was, it was interesting. Um, you know that Wes Anderson is influenced by a lot of films. Like he's a major cinephile and he's constantly referencing other films and getting inspiration from other films, but kind of listening to him list it as the film goes on where he's like, and this reference is an episode of the Rockford files and this reference, you know, references Louis Melhay and, you know, uh, this is a Melville reference and it's, um, it's kind of, uh, kind of blows your mind how much, film and TV history is in his head while he's creating things. 
Yeah, I mean this. I mean, I, I I don't know how unpopular popular it is. I never can tell where people are on Wes Anderson anymore because I feel like there's like ebbs and flows of like mm. overrated, underrated. Like I can't ever tell. But like, I don't know. I find him to be a super interesting person. Like I I don't think he's just a man who wears skinny suits and eats like a a saltine every day for lunch and like has a pop up book for all of his influences. I don't know. I think he's interesting. But that movie's great. I mean, that's his. It's not my favorite Wes Anderson movie, but it's probably his best movie. I don't know. Is that fair to say? Um, it's it's at least like his like most commercially and artistically accepted movie. Yeah, I want to say you know when I talk to people who um are not Wes Anderson fans, like they think he's a little bit too twee with his style, they'll still like Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, and then yes. Zissou is the one that falls apart for them. Um. And then for Wes Anderson fans, well, it could be any of the films, except Darjeeling Limited. I feel like that's the one that everyone universally is like, mm, that one wasn't great. <laughs> that's my favorite one. Is it really? Oh, I'm so wrong. <laughs> oh, no, it's it's no, you're not wrong. It's, it's, that is unfortunately the way my brain works. I watched that movie and I'm like, yes, this movie. Well, they're all about daddy issues. But like, I was like, yes, this movie about like mother and father issues as they literally toss their baggage off the back of the train. This is my favorite one. And it has a lot. It's got a lot wrong with it, but like I just like that movie a lot. But yeah, I think Rushmore and this are like the two where I feel like people come back to the most who maybe aren't cinephiles. It was like right time, right place. Like the cast is like pretty much every it person from like the late 90s and aughts. And then you obviously have Gene Hackman, which ties into what I watched this week, uh, essentially doing what is one of his like final great performances because he doesn't make many movies after the Royal Ten Mile. Like, he makes, like, a few more movies, obviously, but like, his last credit is Welcome to Mooseport, like, mm. which doesn't come out that much longer after this. Yeah. So. It's, it's, the performances are really amazing, and they didn't actually have um, rehearsal for this film. They, they really weren't able to do rehearsal. They kind of had to just go into the space and, you know, live it in that house that they found in New York. Have you seen The Royal Ten Elizabeth, I'm never sure what Wes Anderson you have and haven't seen. I have seen the Royal Tenenbaums. It was a while ago, so I'm a little rusty. Um, but that was one that I have seen. I, as a person who likes Wes Anderson, I unfortunately haven't gotten around to seeing too many of his films. But I really like Grand Budapest Hotel because the sets are so cute that to me is objectively his best film but that's like an argument for a different day that's like where i'm like well this is just i don't i don't know i made this movie but it's great but i love them all (laughs) yeah yeah also the thing about watching commentary tracks movie like i own a lot of movies that is the one thing that as i get older i think what you experience is like these movies have sat on my shelf where like I've watched them a billion times. And for some reason, even though it's like a director's commentary track, it's not like a film historian or something like I still always have to like find the time to watch it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like whereas when I was in college, it was like very easy. Like, ah, oh, yeah, sure. I'll throw it in the background while I like play Castlevania or something like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those are but like those early commentary tracks from like the 90s and aughts were like no one. There's no podcast. They're not getting interviewed for these movies like a billion times or whatever. Like truly feels like a wellspring of information at the time where you wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. So those are always super interesting to revisit because also people don't know the format yet. And so they're willing Mm -hmm. to just like let things fly that they wouldn't usually let fly if they were in like a more mannered interview. And I don't know if that's what Wes is doing if or if it's just him just like, 
being very casual and like he's not with it on anybody. Is it just him? It's just him. And um, it kind of just seems like he's remembering the production of the film while he's watching it. So, you know, he'll say like, oh, those mice. Yeah. How we did that. You know, and, and you, you know, so it's it's little things like that. Tying into that, speaking of Gene Hackman, I unintentionally uh, the past week, I have watched two Tony Scott films from the 90s. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the both the Scott brothers. Wait, this is unintentional? It was unintentional. I like it just this had, sounds so, like something you would purposely do. I would purposefully do. But the, the, the truth of the matter is I watched two Tony Scott films. I watched uh, Enemy of the State and Crimson Tide, two movies where Gene Hackman is the is the lead technically against a up and coming hot black Hollywood actor. It's just one of those weird coincidences. The first move, first one I put on was because my partner was doing my nails and she was like, I just want something on the background that I've seen before. And like, I hadn't seen Enemy of State in like years. And I was like, sure, why not? Truly was like watching it for the first time. And then Crimson Tide was just like, we were putting up Christmas decorations. And I was like, like, oh yeah, this like submarine movie. Like, I don't think I've ever actually seen this movie. Cause I always got it mixed up with Hunt for Red October, the yeah. other submarine uh, movie and boy Tony Scott's a great director <laughs> something I already knew uh, but I those movies are insane Tony Scott is like one of our premier like essentially for if you've never seen a Tony Scott movie if you've seen a Michael Bay movie imagine that but like measured and good <laughs> like it really like it really is like a lot of the same like type of like spinning cameras a lot of like quick cutting mm-hmm. a lot of like kinetic action a lot of people like shouting at each other to like convey intensity and a lot of men being professional doing professional things uh mm-hmm. This is like an essentially like one movie is just like a throwback to like 70s paranoia thrillers like, you know, Three Days of the Condor and the Parallax View. The other one's a submarine movie, which is like its own genre of movie. And they both have this thing. And like I mentioned up front, they both have this thing where it's Gene Hackman is like the new Hollywood, like the 70s new Hollywood, like legendary actors. And these are coming out at a time when like it's the late 80s and 90s and like they're like yeah so we're gonna pair like the old stars with like the new up-and-coming stars so like that's when you get these movies with like will smith and denzel washington or you get the color of money with tom cruise and paul newman and you get i think i think it's called the score with edward norton it's like three generations it's like marlon brando robert de niro edward norton like all three like define their generation although i don't think edward norton worked out as much as people thought he would um but it's like that era. Oh yeah, you have the movie with um which are the same person. You have the movie with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt that I can't remember the name of right now. Where it's like that's just the same person except one's y- the young version of that person. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, so it's just like interesting that in the 90s he made these two films where like it's essentially that it's you have in Crimson Tide, you have Denzel Washington who's like the like no nonsense like new guy abo- aboard the submarine with this old this older guy who's like he does things by the book gene hackman just meaning like he does things without question and so essentially it's denzel washington preventing nuclear war from breaking out because he's like they uh, they attacked us so we have to respond back with like nuclear force or whatever and denzel washington's like no don't do that that's bad uh, <laughs> and then you have uh you have enemy of the state uh enemy of the state which is like the surveillance movie with 
Will Smith and like I said, it's like a throwback to those 70s movies, very Hitchcocky and in that like it's an ordinary man, extraordinary. It's very North by Northwest, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like that's all, feels like all those what those paranoia thrillers were all riffing off of, which yeah. is North by Northwest. And that movie is great. Everyone's famous in that movie. It's all young. Like it's got like Jack Black, Seth Green, Jamie Kennedy, uh, the guy <laughs> from Gone in 60 Seconds, who's like an illustration of what a Chad looks like. The meme Chad. <laughs> I don't know. He's like a perfectly square, round head. He's in it. Uh, Jason Lee's in it for like five minutes. And it's, so it's like, it seems like Tony Scott just wanted to make a movie with like every hot, young Lisa Bonet, like every like hot, young actor at the time, and then just put them all in a movie in world, which Will Smith uh, has a running bit with a blender that doesn't pay off. But, you know, still good movie. Have you got, have you guys seen, I, I mean, I'm assuming you guys have seen a Tony Scott movie at some point. Definitely, I've seen Enemy of State. Yeah, I haven't seen Crimson Tide. I can't that even. That movie eats Red for Red October's lunch. I just want to say that it's the better of the two submarine movies. I think I think Hunt for Red October is kind of boring in retrospect. I haven't seen it since I was a child, so I have no <laughs> basis of comparison really. My I know my dad loves Denzel Washington. Denzel, yeah. Denzel is my dad's favorite actor, so my dad has probably seen Crimson Tide and loves it. I mean, he's great. I mean, it's one of those things like, I don't know if Denzel Washington's ever given a bad performance. It's like, I don't think he's ever phoned in a performance. The movies, he's been in bad movies, obviously, but like, he's never, he himself has never given a bad performance. It's one of those things where like, it makes sense that he would pair Denzel Washington with Gene Hackman in a movie. I would say the less successful pairing is Enemy of the State, but it's not glaring. It's just that Will Smith's energy and Gene Hackman's energy are like, they don't really mix. Like, it's like oil and water. Like, they don't mix for me completely. Hmm. Which is why I like Will Smith paired with another Barry Sonnenfeld hmm. movie with Tommy Lee Jones and Men in Black because for some reason that energy is like Tommy Lee Jones, who is a man who's never smiled before. <laughs> and Will Smith, a man who is desperately trying to make everyone smile. <laughs> I think that works great in that movie. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have any Tony Scott experience? Have you seen either of these movies? I haven't seen either of those. I mean, I've seen Top Gun. I wouldn't say I'm the biggest fan of Top Gun. It Why? Kind of made me angry. Wait, but what? It just is it spoilers if I talk about what happens in Top no, Gun? Like the, the one likable like- character dies, so I'm like annoyed by it. Like, I'm annoyed that he died. Guys, I'm sorry. Top Gun spoilers. Goose dies. It's fine. (laughs) It's all good. Goose is my favorite, and he killed him off, so I just was annoyed because of the time that I watched that. If I watch it again, I know it's coming, so it it might be different. But honestly, the one – I haven't seen too many. I've seen the remake of Taking Pelham 1, 2, 3. You've seen Unstoppable, his final film. That's the one I've seen the most. Yes, which is, weirdly enough, like – not to, I mean, obviously they work together, but like, weirdly enough, like, Quinn Tarantino, like, is right that it's probably like, maybe his, like, weirdly his masterpiece. <laughs> and it's the last it's movie. So I mean, he, 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 he died tragically of suicide, but like, he, the, like, the last movie he made was like, this kind of unassumed, like, I, f- I feel like when this movie, when Unstoppable came out, it was just kind of just, yeah, it's Chris Pine, like Chris Pine, the new guy who's in Star Trek, other movies, you know, in minor roles before that, and Denzel Washington. It's a movie about a train. And people were like, good movie, and then think about it. And then people recently have been revisiting and they're like, wait, that movie is like an action masterpiece? I don't, un- like, why are we not talking about <laughs> it more? Yeah, I really love that movie. So yeah, I'm not against seeing more. I just haven't gotten around to it. 
Yeah, I mean, like he's everything. he's a director <laughs> I think is going to get a lot of, I wouldn't say reappraisal. I think he's already been reappraised by like filmmakers who are like now in like their 40s and 50s and things like that. But I do think that like, you know, since his death, I, I have a feeling like there's people are going to be revisiting his like films and like kind of dissecting it. Like there's already like, you can read articles about like the difference between him and Ridley Scott, his brother, and, you know, mm-hmm. how Ridley Scott's more of this like, austere journeyman director and like tony scott is like the cigar chomping like (laughs) if it's commercial put it in the movie and i'll make it look interesting like that is like that top gun is essentially just a two hour long music video so like yeah like not a so hollywood yeah yeah it's not it that's not a bad thing it's just that is what tony scott did and so it's it's interesting to like revisit movies and like find like the little like more artistic flourishes in the We did he did do The Hunger. That was his first film, right? Yes, which is that is also just a two hour music video. <laughs> Knowing that the same person did The Hunger and Top Gun, that's a li- I don't know. I my mind has trouble reconciling those two films as having the same author. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it kind of reminds me of the Catherine Bigelow thing where like, it's weird that she did like Blue Steel and Near Dark, but then she made like, you know, Detroit. <laughs> it's like, it's like, how is that the same director? Like, I don't yeah. understand how that's the same director. Uh, yeah. So uh, I went really long on that, but I really like Tony Scott. Uh, so maybe you guys check it out. I do know Enemy of the State is on HBO Max and uh, Crimson Tide is on Amazon Prime. So if you're interested in either of those movies, go ahead and check them out. But with that out of the way, baby, we got to get to brass tacks. So join us as we try to dance a three-way mamushka and talk about Barry Sonnenfeld's, I'm just gonna say it, masterpiece, Adam's Family Values. I don't enjoy hurting anybody. I don't like guns or bombs or electric chairs, but sometimes people just won't listen. And so I have to use persuasion and slides. My parents, Sharon and Dave, generous, doting, or were they? All I ever wanted was a ballerina Barbie in her pretty pink tutu. My birthday. I was 10. And you know what they got me? Malibu Barbie. That's not what I wanted. That's not who I was. I was a ballerina. Graceful, delicate. They had to go. Adam's Family Values is a great movie in the podcast. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, Laura, tell us, why did you, I mean, I know why, but why in particular did you want to talk about this movie on the podcast? Well, in, in part because we were doing this episode around Thanksgiving. And so, um, it's my, I, I think this is true for a lot of people. It's my Thanksgiving watch. I watch it every year, think the week of Thanksgiving. So it's on my mind. I knew I was going to watch it. Might as well talk about it. Yeah, it's like, a, it's from like a lineage. There's not a lot of Thanksgiving movies. Like really, it's, to me, it's just this and planes, trains, and automobiles. I can't think of any other movie I would throw on for like that specifically about a holiday. Elizabeth, what is your history with this movie? We've talked about loving it, but like, I don't know. Is it just you saw it as a kid and you liked it and you just watch it every once in a while? I mean, this and the first one were always on ABC Family, which 
is now called Freeform, and I think that's where you can still find them if you want to watch them and you have cable. But it was always on every year, probably multiple times a year. So it would just be something we'd throw on and then revisit it as an adult and was like, actually, there were a lot of things I didn't catch in this as a child. Surprise. Um, and it's a pretty great movie. What about you? Uh, as I was telling Laura off microphone, uh, this aired on TV weirdly way more than the first movie, which I, I think there's something about sequels with that where I think they the rights to sequels might be cheaper to get or something for television broadcasts because I feel like yeah. sequels to movies play way more often than like the like I've talked to a lot of people they've seen Father of the Bride part two <laughs> infinitely more than they've seen Father of the Bride which I just think is funny uh and there's a lot of movies like that but yeah I just watched this movie so much as a kid I was so not to turn this like 90s kids remember this segment or whatever but like there was this period in the 90s where like between TV land and uh, Nick at night and various other broadcast things were like, you were getting a lot of uh, television from like the the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties and seventies that were just being, you know, being rebroadcast. And so, yeah, there were blocks. I don't know. I don't remember on which channel where they would show the monsters in the Adams family, like back to back, like mm-hmm. the two kooky monster family TV shows. So like I was already kind of in the bag for this movie, like I was three when this movie came out, obviously. This is a movie I didn't see until I was closer to like seven or eight as it ran on cable or whatever. But at that time, like those shows are airing and I'm like already kind of into it. Like I'm already kind of into those comic strips as a kid. Like like my grandma would have them in like certain publications, the Charles Adams comic strip, which is what this is based off of. And then there was a Saturday morning cartoon that was like based off of weirdly the movie and the TV. It was like an amalgamation of both and so yeah i've just i had i like this was a movie that if i wasn't watching on tv i was like begging my mom to rent it from the video store just so i can watch it over and over again and then just as an adult and like getting into movies like i just started to recognize like there is like a lot of craft and like thought put into this movie like everything about this is extremely craft and so my relationship with this movie is that i've just seen it enough times to just kind of come to the like the verdict i don't understand why people didn't like this movie when it came out in 1993 uh and i think it's like legitimately like probably like a comic masterpiece from a director who made what i would consider like four very good movies and then like two masterpieces yeah yeah i mean it's interesting i i don't know that people didn't like it when it came out i think it was just up against like I, I looked up what what else was released around the same weeks, and like it went right up against Mrs. Doubtfire, and so the the first weekend it was released, it was number one at the box office the first weekend, but then it was knocked off in subsequent weeks by other films. Um, so I think part of the issue with it was just it was you know a Thanksgiving release. It was released the Friday before Thanksgiving. That's a huge holiday push for a lot of studios and it had a lot of competition but if you read the reviews you, there were a lot of critics who thought the Adams family values was better than the first movie that it had a better plot that it was tighter yeah for sure like i remember ebert like reading a review from ebert where like i think they'd like t- he came down negative on it but he was like it's way more interesting and better than the first movie like cuz the first movie the mer- first movie is kind of a happy accident the first movie was a surprise success. They weren't expecting to get a sequel to this because the first movie, if my recollection of like reading the history about it, is that it 
they had approached a ton of directors to do it. Like, obviously, you have your obvious ones like Terry Gilliam mm-hmm. and Tim Burton. And no one really wanted to do it. Not for any particular reason. It wasn't like a stink about it. It just, no one was really like that energized to do it. And so Barry Sonnenfeld was like probably like a fifth choice to this movie. And those for those who don't know who Barry Sonnenfeld is, like he's obviously now just a director in his own right. But he is most famously the Coen Brothers DP on like all of their early films up until... I don't know when his last Coen Brothers film, but like he obviously shot Blood Simple and like the Hudsucker Proxy. I'm not sure if he shot Fargo. I'm pretty sure. I think he shot Miller's Crossing. Shot Miller's Crossing. It's it's pretty easy to tell, which is kind of something I wanted to get into, especially with a filmmaker on our podcast, is that I don't know what you call the style. I've tried to read about it, but like he is a very distinctive animated cartoonish i don't really know how to describe it but like people like him and terry gilliam and george miller like have this very particular like i don't want to call it looney tune style but like that's the best description for it i can come up with but like things are a lot more amplified and heightened the way he shoots movies even if the movies themselves aren't amplified and heightened it's just the way that he shoots the people and the action in them but yeah he was their dp and this was, uh, Adam's Family was his very first movie. And so he signed on and there were like tons of problems with the movies. Apparently it was owned by Orion, which like if you've seen any movie from like the, like any sort of like B movie from the eighties, those are usually Orion movies. Uh, and then mid production, they had to sell it to Paramount because mm-hmm. of like weird rights issues with like Charles Adams, like dying, right. his widow retaining the rights. And also, like, Barry Sonnenfeld is an incredibly nervous man, apparently, who, like, had, like, tons of health problems on the thing because he was so nervous about taking the film. The fact that the movie was, like, a hit amongst all that was actually kind of a surprise. And they rushed production on a sequel because one Paramount just wanted 100% rights to everything. And they just wanted to rush a sequel to theaters to, like, kind of be like, yes, and we own all the profits from this. But also because, like, the first movie had, like, kind of hit unexpectedly hard. Uh, And it's, it's interesting because, like, I feel like when people reference this movie, reference the Adams Family movies, they're mostly only referencing this movie. No one really talks about the first movie very much. Oh, you don't think so? In my recollection, of, like conversations about the Adams Family with people, like they talk when they talk about it in the broad sense, they're like, "Oh yeah, the Mamushka and things like that." But like they're like, uh, "Yeah," and then the 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 camp and Thanksgiving. And I'm like, "No, that's the second movie." And they're <laughs> like, "Oh," and then Joan Cusack, and I'm like, "No, that's the second movie." Like everybody mostly remembers things from this movie, so it's it it is interesting that it had like kind of this not reevaluation. Like you said, there were critics who liked it when it came out, but you know, it had a a it found an it found a wider audience probably through cable and just years of like pop cultural, you know. Uh, the word for like it's everywhere <laughs> right yeah i mean it, it was pretty popular on syndication and then there were there were probably a lot of families like mine that had like the video cassettes there was a huge tie-in with mcdonald's when adam's family values was released that you could get the you could get the vhs for like 5.99 if you purchased like a big mac um, and, and so there was, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was this huge tie in, um, where you could, I can't remember whether you could buy it at the, at McDonald's or whether you got like a rebate with your McDonald's sandwich, like your burger. And, and then you could like exchange that for either a, a knockoff on the rental price or knockoff on the, um, the VHS, there was like a huge thing, like the um, independent video store owners 
hated these tie-ins. They were really popular in the <laughs> mid-90s. Like there were tie-ins with yeah. like Wayne's World 2. There were tie-ins with like Pizza Hut for some other films um, where you would get basically VHS copies of the film for like buying a pizza you'd get a discount. So they normally retail for like 15 bucks. So if you're an independent video store owner, you're selling it for $15. So this McDonald's corporate tie-in is way undercutting your ability to sell these films. There was like a big mm-hmm. protest at like the, I don't know, the the national organization for like video store owners. It was like a big thing that year. Wow, that's crazy. That's, <laughs> that's something, that's an economy I've never sat and considered. But like to talk about the movie itself, just to like talk about the first movie a little bit. The first movie is like kind of a, it's not a mess or anything. It's very vignette The basic plot is like Uncle Fester, played by Christopher Lloyd, doesn't remember that he's the brother. Like he is the uncle of the Adams family. Like he just doesn't remember he's been gone for a long time. And this woman is essentially like taking adv- advantage of this like amnesia and like essentially trying to con which both these movies are about conning the Adams family out of their money, which is very like both these movies have the a very interesting sub. The second movie has a lot of subtext, but both these movies have the subtext of like I always read the Adams family and also like kind of the monsters a little bit is like old world money settling into the suburbs, which I think is something that happened more and more as like immigration was happening in the 20th, like the late 20th century. You have these like Eastern European families and people from like other countries where like they have already this accrued wealth and then they're moving into suburban neighborhoods Mm. and then all the like wasp there are just like they are these people are weird and yet they have all this money like they don't understand them and to me like the Adams family kind of plays as like a parody of that essentially where it's like this weird kooky family is in the suburbs and there's nothing we can do about it which is it's also very like 90s sentiment where it's like the 90s are this time when normality (sighs) it's always hard to explain like the normality in nineties, but it's just like the second movie touches on this where it's like, everything is just so not bland, but like everyone's comfortable. No Mm -hmm. one. So people are kind of like seeking out weirdness in the nineties. And I think that's why this movie hits such a like cultural and the TV show and the cartoon, like hit such a like cultural string at that point. So that's what the Adams family kind of reads to me. It's just like Eastern European money moving into suburban neighborhoods but like Mm. yeah the first movie is like they're trying to uncle fester doesn't have a memory and they're trying to get the adams family money but really it's just a lot of vignettes around that like the plot isn't really driving the movie very much like he obviously gets his memory back and like things happen and the villains get their like just desserts but tucked in there you do have this like nice little interesting movie about like a family that like legitimately loves each other and (laughs) like a husband and wife who like legitimately enjoy each other's company and are like very sexually aroused by each other (laughs) and two kids if you take the creepy subtext like the creepy layer off of the kids it's two kids who are like kind of precocious and like go-getters and like have brains and like experiment with things and then lurch who is Lurch. He's a big butler. <laughs> Played by the actor from Twin Peaks and uh, <laughs> and Men in Black. Um, but yes, uh, that so that's the movie. And then the second movie, I think because they had more freedom, they were able to like make something that's a little bit more coherent plot-wise while still, still, still kind of keeping those vignettes and subplotty things. Like the movie is still just cutting back to like the kids torturing little pubert, Aww. which is the baby's name. <laughs> Poor little pubert. <laughs> 
uh, well, torturing. They're trying to murder him. I should make that very clear. It's and not torture. <laughs> it was a bit of um, controversy right around the film's release where there were some people who were wondering, like, um, should we be watching child abuse? And Sonnenfeld and the re- and the cast, you know, they part of their press junket was saying, like, no, no, it's lighthearted. They're not really trying to kill their brother, um, which... You know, they're they're trying to make it a little bit more light that this is poking fun at sibling rivalry. But yeah. the first thing they do is drop him out of off the roof, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> and they try to it's- behead him with a guillotine. So I, I it's hilarious, but it's I, so good. But it, it's funny that that Sonnenfeld and the cast are like, no, no, they're not really trying to kill Pubert. It's just sibling rivalry. But the reason of the controversy, I don't know if you remember this, but um, the year or so before, there was a kid who lit their sibling on fire after watching the Beavis and Butthead movie. Maybe it wasn't, I don't remember whether it was the movie or the TV show, but so there was, there was like this big thing. And this, this feels like a theme in the nineties in general. I remember this being constant when I was a child that like media are destroying children. Um, but that had happened recently enough that there was a concern that, that kids would be inspired by Adam's family values to abuse their siblings. Which is, you know, the debate as far as like depiction influencing children is forever going to rage on until the heat death of the universe. This just plays like very Tom, like, I don't know. I feel like if you're a child and you watch a Tom and Jerry cartoon and you watch this, you your brain probably is like, oh, it's the same thing. Right. It's just, it's it's very silly. Like, obviously you can't drop a baby from a roof and it'll live. You can't guillotine a baby and it miraculously escapes at this last second. Like the movie right. opens with Pubert's birth as like, <laughs> he's like flying through, like a hand is like flying through the air and like, I think that generally kids are smart enough to recognize that. But yes, that was probably a controversy. I do remember there being a controversy because obviously before home video, there being that they were, they thought Wednesday had killed that little girl at camp. Oh, right. Yeah. They changed. (laughs) Yeah. After test screenings, they, they actually inserted that shot in the airplane. The airplane when Pubert flies up and you see the like you see the family Pubert flies down so you see that she's still alive i think even some people missed it because obviously if you're not paying attention it just looks like she lights this girl on fire and the only thing that remains is her retainer it's so good i mean that's the i like the logic of the these movies logic is funny because you don't know how malicious pugsley and wednesday are right and like you you truly don't know if they have killed before or actually have intentions <laughs> to kill. I think we can assume they have. That is, I have always assumed they have, like watching these movies, is that it's just macabre, it's just macabre humor. Like everyone in this family has probably killed somebody at some point. I mean, there's the great, I mean, there's the great joke from from uh, Gomez, Raul Julia, where he says something like, uh, you know, you'll meet somebody, someone nice, someone who won't press charges. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, and he, just and jokes like that. The first day at the camp, um, one of the parents is commenting, oh, I can't remember exactly what they say, but he says acquitted, you know, about Pugsley. So he's been mm-hmm. acquitted yes. for manslaughter or homicide at some point. For something. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all these movies, all they're all gallows humor or like macabre jokes about death. I mean, at, even at one point they talk about like 
like do you think that like just because a new child comes like one of them has to die and uh carol kane's like not anymore (laughs) (laughs) well the opening scene is them burying a cat alive so that really sets the tone and plays it as a joke you know that they're they're burying their poor departed cat who meows and shakes in the box and then they (laughs) set it into the grave and yeah i mean this movie heavily establishes its two or three themes like pretty much like in the opening scene of like Mm -hmm. like, it's about death it's about sex like it's a very sexual movie like we we have to get into how like literally the opening joke in the movie is like like i hear babies come from like you know like comes from storks and then like christina christina ricci as wednesday just answers like our parents had sex like (laughs) elizabeth what like so you when's the last did you rewatch this in preparation for this podcast or just you just rewatched it like around October? I, it was like a month ago when I rewatched it. Okay. Uh, so recently, but not in the last week. How just like, so you're a little younger than, <laughs> than yeah, us. Like, I you wasn't know, born have... when this movie came out. I was born in 1994. Yes. So <laughs> everything you've... I know about it is in syndication. So like, what is it like watching it as an adult for you? I mean, I enjoy <laughs> it's funny for me as an adult because like there's there's no question as to whether I'm like, yeah, that could happen. Like, I know that these are all like jokes and they're funny and it's not something that children who are saying do like there's there's no gray area for me. Like, oh, I wonder if I threw the baby out the window, would it live? <laughs> I mean, you are the oldest sibling, so <laughs> I you probably you probably did unintentionally try to murder your siblings at some point. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> were you very much a were, were you very much a Wednesday Adams growing up? Oh no, I was not. I was definitely I wasn't near like I was not. What's her name, Amanda? I was not that. You weren't that either. But I was not. I was not Wednesday. <laughs> you were a normal I liked, child. I liked pink. I'm wearing pink right now. Like I like <laughs> colors a lot. <laughs> so I, I was pretty normal, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I was very. I was very first childy, mm-hmm. but like normal first childy. Well, I'm also the oldest in my among my siblings, so. Um, so that's fun. You get to boss everyone around. Um, but I, I did, when I was a teenager, go through, I would say, a little bit of a gothy phase. So when I was 12, I was I'm probably a pretty normal kid. But um, yeah, I think I related to Wednesday when I was around 14. Felt like I could understand her point of view a little bit. Well, Christina Ricci is 13 in this movie. Like, I forgot that, like, they're teenage, like, her and Pugsley are teenagers in this movie. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm the youngest, so I'm pubert in this movie. But, uh, <laughs> so you're getting dropped off a <laughs> building. Of three siblings. So I get dropped off a building. I mean, you do. I mean, like, it is true. Like, if you're the youngest sibling, especially if there's, like, a large gap in age, as the, like as there is in this movie and me with my siblings, like, yeah, like, you do kind of get, like, the baby, like, the baby child abuse thing where it's like, uh, let's see if, like, we can, like, rolled david down the stairs wrapped in a blanket so he won't get hurt and, things like that. and you're a child so you're like yeah let's do it sure whatever like mm-hmm. i won't die but yeah no I, I i i don't know i don't know if i like i mean if i relate to anybody's movie it's uncle fester like it's, it's, it's what? <laughs> <laughs> uh which we should we should talk about the cast of this movie which is mostly the reason i wanted to talk about this movie i don't think 
this is one of those types of movies where like it is hard for me to imagine anyone else playing these characters as in, like they're so set in stone and like that might just be a symptom of like there was like an absolutely TV show and then a cartoon and then another cartoon after this, mm-hmm. which has one of the biggest pieces of missed casting opportunity in it. But we'll get to that later. And there's like a play like Tim Curry was in like a musical of the Adams family. Yeah, correct. But for me, like the cast of this movie, particularly this movie specifically, like is the Adams family to me. And I can't it's hard for me. Like everyone is so perfectly cast in this movie, despite well, Christopher Lloyd being the weirdly the exception, except he is perfectly cast in this movie in that they obviously they look like the characters. They're obviously very well designed. Like there's like a lot of costuming and makeup happening for mm-hmm. this to happen. Mm-hmm. But like Angelica Houston as Morticia, a role in which like most of the things she says are like one sentence or like one word and everything she says is funny. Like I, I don't really know how to explain it, but like just her talking the Joan Cusack and then like saying like I respect all the things you do but pastels like just that just that <laughs> one li- just delivery of that one line is incredible I mean then you have Raul Julia who we could do a whole podcast about he's like a Philip Seymour Hoffman type to me where like I don't think anyone ever really got over the fact that he died <laughs> like kind of tragically yeah. young because like his career had just weirdly enough had was like he was just breaking through like his breakthrough mm-hmm. like He'd been in movies since like Panic at Needle Park without Pacino. I think that's his earliest movie. Yeah, it's he the had any movie I've seen him in. He had a long stage career, so huge stage career. Well, very he's a successful. Like, yeah, he's a Shakespearean actor. Yeah, so very successful on stage. Um, yes, and like his movie career felt like in the '90s was just like heating up. Like he was in a lot of things mm-hmm. in like either supporting or leading roles. This is his second to last movie. Like his right. last movie is Street Fighter, and much like Philip Seymour Hoffman never phoned in a role he is giving the performance of a lifetime in street fighter the movie <laughs> like he's legitimately great like and he probably knows the type of movie in he's sick at this point he could have easily just like done whatever but like he's incredible in that movie and this is the second to last movie in angelica houston by all accounts that like he could she could tell that he was yeah dying yeah like he had lo- like he lost weight during this like he was slowly losing weight during this movie so they had to compensate in like the mm-hmm. costume design his his like speech in that police station about <laughs> like trying to rescue Fester, like with like him shouting at Nathan Lane, is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in a movie. I'm just gonna insert the audio here. It's uh, is a great scene. I demand justice. Someone has married my brother. No. She took him to Hawaii. Get out of here. They have moved into a large, expensive home where they make love constantly. I hate when that happens. Arrest her at once without delay. Who? Debbie, my brother's wife, the temptress of Waikiki. Who are you? What are you? Who moved the rock? Officer, you must issue a subpoena. I believe they own... Gomez, no. A Buick! Just leave. Leave quietly. Leave now. Don't make me call Ringling Brothers. Has the planet gone mad? My brother, passion's hostage. I seek justice. Denied. I shall not submit. I shall conquer. I shall rise. My name is Gomez Adams, and I have seen evil. I have seen horror. I have seen 
the unholy maggots which feast in the dark recesses of the human soul. There it can. I have seen all this, officer, but until today, I had never seen you. Huckum, buckum, cuckum. Now! And the scene of, like, Pubert, like, becoming normal, <laughs> becoming a normie, essentially, and yeah. him just being like a take-me god, and then, like, soft sobs. So funny. I just miss him so much. Like, are you guys Raul Jewel fans? I don't know if you've seen, like, he, if, like a lot of his movies, but, like, he's great in everything. I've oh, never yeah. given a bad performance. I, I would love to... Like, I don't know if any of those Broadway plays or theatrical things have ever been recorded. I just want to see his theater work if it's available to be seen. Yeah, I've, I've, I've never seen any. I'm, I'm not sure if it's available either. I've only seen photos like he was in a production of um, I think something like Dracula. I can't remember exactly. Dracula. Yeah, it yeah. is Dracula. And he's so beautiful dressed as Dracula. Like it's it's off the charts. He's so pretty. Yeah, it's the same. Elizabeth, are you did, did, are you a fan of Raul Julia? Um, I am in that I love him in these films, but I don't think I've actually seen anything else that he is in. Yes, I mean, if I were to give like a quick like check these out, it would obviously be these two movies. I would check him out and Kiss the Spider Woman. Mm-hmm. It's great in that. He's in Presumed Innocent with uh, Harrison Ford. I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure he's in a movie that's. I wouldn't call it good, but I enjoy it called Tequila Sunrise. And which again, like the movie isn't great, but like he's great in it as like, you know, like a I think like a drug kingpin. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I compare him to Philip Seymour Hoffman very purposefully. It's because like this is like a fully committed performance and like it's so specific. Like this isn't like it's not broad in any way. He's doing something very specific as Gomez Adams, like from the way he talks about loving his wife to like the way he says kind of insidious things you could understand he is very handsome and like you could understand like how he could be the face of this like very strange family but he himself is like he looks the most normal but is just as like deranged as like anybody else i don't know it's but but innocent right i mean i think that's one of the things that i enjoy about the family dynamic gomez and morticia have a certain level of innocence and naivete to their characters like they're played very sincerely by role julia and angelica houston um and that, and that's kind of contrasted with the kids who are more cynical in their worldview and and their humor and there's there's always seems to be like a level of sarcasm with wednesday but never with gomez gomez or morticia they're just so sincere and don't seem to really acknowledge ever how their family is different than others like they they just seem to approach everyone outside the family with this warmness yeah they're very inviting yeah to all outsiders who come into their house like i mean the first movie i mean she pops back up in this movie like there's that one i I forget the actress's name but the woman who marries into the marries into the family to uh cousin it Mm -hmm. (laughs) like like just a very Mm normal like like invites her in and like she gets taken in by the whole thing but like obviously you have like dan hade in the first movie who's just like i'm their lawyer and this sucks and i hate it uh (laughs) but like yeah they never they never cast judgment they're more confused by people because you see them at the camp being Mm -hmm. like a what is this like they don't understand Right. Like the idea that this would be appealing seems very confusing, but they're 
nice to everyone that they interact with. Like they're nice to the other parents. They're very open about who they are. There's no sense of self-consciousness with them um, or sense that um, the things that they say would be taken um, as odd by other people. They seem to assume that their point of view is perfectly normal and average and that other people would feel the same way as them. Why would anyone not feel that yeah. way? Yet the only time they get upset at anybody is Joan Cusack because she's trying to take their fester away. Like that's literally the only reason they don't like her. Like otherwise, like she'd probably be a great addition to the family being a black widow killer. Absolutely. They seem to completely support her killing spree when she's going through her slides at the end. They're like, Oh, Malibu bar to be how horrendous. Oh the man, we'll get, we're going to get, we are for obvious reasons <laughs> going to get to Joan Cusack at some point. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> um, just In so movie, I'm wearing the, the, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to, I just wanted people to know that you're wearing a Joan Cusack shirt in the Sonnenfeld font. Yeah, it says Joan Cusack deserved an Oscar. <laughs> it's from our good friends at Super Yaki. Shout out to Super Yaki. Very specific movie apparel place. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I mean, was, we're going down the cast list and we're going to end with Joan Cusack. But yes, um, Christina Ricci, great. Like, I don't know. Like, she, I mean, at the time she was like the go-to, like, you need a young kind of sad girl it was like her or Winona Ryder but Winona Ryder is like a little older than her at this point so. right right around this time Christina Ricci was also in Casper now and then mm -hmm. so she was definitely like a leading child coming of age actor yes let's just talk about Christopher Lloyd this to me is Christopher Lloyd's best is controversial this is to that me is controversial yes because obviously we know like obviously yes Doc Brown <laughs> Great performance. I'm not saying it's a bad performance. Obviously, yes. Reverend Jim mm -hmm. in Taxi. Incredible. Like, I mean, also, like, also great. And he's, I don't know, like, he's great in pretty much everything. Like, he's great in Buckaroo Banzai. And, like, I don't know. He, if Christopher Lloyd's in a movie, I'm usually pretty happy about it. Like, I'm never upset when Christopher Lloyd pops up. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's so committed to this because it's such a transformation. Like, Christopher Lloyd's like a tall, it's such a physical performance, which is why I like it so much. Christopher Lloyd is like, Tall and lanky, like he's not that much shorter than Raul Julie. I'm pretty sure. Like I'm pretty sure, like Chris Floyd's like probably six foot, six one, and like Raul Julie is like six two or six three or something like that. He has to play this like rounded, dumpy weirdo that is like a different type of weirdo than like say Doc Brown, who's like like it, it's so it's like so fascinating. And for years, and the reason like I like this performance so much is for years I didn't know that was Christopher Lloyd pre like me googling who's in this movie or like you know or just like paying attention to credits like i if you had told me that person and the person that i watched on taxi of you know the same night or whatever on like tv land i would have never believed you it's such a like transformative performance for me and he was like worried about it yeah like he like he truly didn't think he was going to be right for the role and they were going to fire him and mm -hmm. find somebody who was like closer to charles adams's drawings of uncle fester the makeup work they do on him and like he apparently is kneeling not on his knees but like, he is scrunched down and hunched over the entire time <laughs> and that's how he conveys that he's short and like you don't you're not actually like registering it it has to be the case because he's so tall well the cloak does hide shape so i yes. i can imagine that you it wouldn't register because the cloak just really covers any sense of shape that he has yes correct it's funny because he's weirdly the main character of both these movies. 
if you kind of think about it. Like, both of the plots revolve around Uncle Fester. Mm-hmm. It, I don't know. Right, I, well... I find it... Yeah, his narrative drives the causal line, you could say. Yes. Yeah. You're correct. I mean, obviously, like, in this movie, this movie's great because, like, with the exception of, like, Lurch and Grandmama Adams, like everyone kind of has a sub like everyone has their own plot happening in the movie at the same time um yeah i think that's one of the reasons why values is considered a better film than the first one because you do have like these like parallel lines of plot weaving in with each other and so it just it feels like a more satisfying film Mm -hmm. to um at least like to the critics at the time yes I mean, but then even the like supporting players like Lurch, who's played by uh, Carol Struckin, uh, Strick, uh who, like I said, you will know as the giant from Men in Black, the giant from Twin Peaks. Uh, he was in. Do- I know he's a very tall. Like he has. Like you know exactly. Like if you see this the man, giant. you know exactly who it is. Like it is my favorite type of casting, which is like this person has a face and a demeanor. That's all they really need to have. They convey everything you need to know. They don't even really need to be a good actor. Luckily, he is like a really good actor. He was in Dr. Sleep last year and had some like business in that that I really enjoyed. He's like great as the giant in Twin Peaks. I made a joke about this on Twitter where I was like, I know how I'd cast a 2020 Adams Family, like fairly, like I think I know how I cast it. The only person I'd be tempted to not recast and just give her less prosthetics is Carol Kane, honestly, mm. as Grandmama Adams, mm-hmm. who is a new addition to this film because mm-hmm. the original actress for Grandmama Adams, uh, for I, I would try to look up what happened, but she dropped out of the of the second of like being in the second movie, and so I love Carol Kane because like she knows exactly what her lane is, and she was like, I will play old, deranged r- witch women for my entire life, no matter how <laughs> old or young I am. Right. But I will progressively age further and further into that role and perfect it. And so I'll be like, yeah, if you made this movie again, like, just put her, just do her again. Yeah. It'd be great. She'd, she'd be just as good. Well, and she'd be right around the, the correct age, because when this was filmed, she was a year or two younger than Angelica Houston. So she's actually, yes. yeah, younger than the her daughter in the film. <laughs> yes, correct. Uh, and then, uh, you know, no dis, no disrespect to uh, Jimmy Workman who plays Pugsley. I feel like Pugsley is the most thankless Adams family member. Oh, like yeah. I don't even know. Like I can't even remember like Pugsley things from the cartoon or the TV show. It just seems like he always tagged along with Wednesday. And that's it. Yeah. I don't know. It, it's He's not given a lot of and, agency. And Jimmy, he's not given a lot of agency. Like, he doesn't really have... A, it's kind of a silent role. Mm-hmm. Not really. Like, he does obviously talk, but, like, he doesn't talk nearly as much as Wednesday does. Mm-hmm. Like, And he's not... Uh, and it's not really... And the dynamic isn't, like, straight man, comedic thing. Like, they're essentially both playing kind of the same vibe, but he doesn't have nearly as much to do or the movie doesn't focus around him. Once again, no disrespect. I just, I don't understand Pugsley as a character, I guess is what I'm saying. I think the idea is like, it's like in quotes, a nuclear family. So you need like parents and then one, like one and a half children. So (laughs) one, like one daughter, one son, like, and that type of thing. And like a pet and all this stuff. And then, so I think that's the joke, but it's also like, I think if they just left Wednesday alone, they would have to find more business to do for Wednesday. Obviously they're, they're one panel comic strips that they're basing these off of. So there's not a lot of plot. But uh, I'm happy that it's a thankless role. I'm happy that he's there. <laughs> Wednesday has someone to bounce off of. I what you were saying about Christopher Lloyd and not realizing it was him. 
I would have to agree. Um, although I'm coming from that, like in a really weird place because I think the first Christopher Lloyd I ever saw was who framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. Which is like, <laughs> which I think is what most people would call his best performance. Uh, it's fantastic, but I've also never seen Back to the Future, a little secret wow. of mine that I don't Ooh, tell too many people. Interesting. Uh, not because I don't want to see it, I just haven't seen it. Um, I would say that my <laughs> my movie watching as a child was weird. It is fascinating because like you haven't seen two <laughs> of like the three biggest trilogies in like modern filmmaking. <laughs> Which I just think is fun. Yeah. I just think is just uh, very amusing. No <laughs> there judgment. There are some big, like, normal things that everyone sees that are just missing from my well, filmography. Of but, but, like, how many people are missing, like, Back to the Future, though? Or, like, Star Wars? <laughs> I, I mean, I wonder how many people of that are around your age might be missing that, though. I, I don't know. I mean, it could be that, you know, like... David and I take for granted that everyone's seen it because everyone our age has seen these movies. They were huge for us when we were children. But, um, you know, different generations have different touchstones. So there's probably some stuff that was huge for your childhood that I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. My nephew liked that. <laughs> yeah, we can't touch it like yeah. Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, the Lindsay Lohans. Like, we can't um, touch you, know, you seen... on that. You've... That's <laughs> Finally, a leg up. <laughs> man i don't want to get on a shrek tangent but that is very that that to me is like that micro generational dividing line where it's like mm -hmm. if you were 12 when shrek came out it's garbage now if you were nine or under when shrek came out it's a masterpiece like i don't <laughs> it's like a weird like micro generational dividing line that i feel like i've come across as i've gotten older because like I don't like Shrek very much, but like I talk to anyone who's like three years younger than me and they're like, you're crazy. It's like as good as Toy Story. And so I just throw my <laughs> I hands mean, up. I don't know if I think that. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it in years. I guess I would have to revisit it. I do remember liking the second one better. Uh, interesting. You like that Counting Crow song a lot. The what? <laughs> the Counting Crow song at the beginning of the movie. That's all I remember about Shrek 2. Oh, honestly. I liked the, no, I liked the fairy godmother version of Holding Out for a Hero. I see. Okay. <laughs> I am not in this conversation. Yeah, I know. This is like <laughs> uh, Justin Timberlake's in one of those movies. I haven't seen them all. I just. <laughs> I've seen the first one. I've seen like four. And then after that, I'm out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Join us on our summer series on Shrek next year when we go super in <laughs> no. depth. No. <on> <laughs> I remember liking them, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> no, please. I, no, please don't subject me to that because <laughs> I don't want to do it. Um, but back to Adam's family values. OK, we just got to get to the star of this movie. Like I said, Uncle Fester is probably the main character, probably. But the star of this movie, it's our girl. It's Joan Cusack. <laughs> like it's De it's it's De uh, it's Debbie. She's I, I don't I like I wore this shirt like I bought this shirt because as soon as Super Yaki like announced it, I was like, and this has been kind of the sentiment in like certain parts of film Twitter for like a long time. But like, like this should have been nominated for an Oscar, if not at least one. Like this should like this is like to me what an Oscar like supporting actress performance is or supporting mm -hmm. actor performance. It's just like she's not in the movie 
She's in the movie a lot, but she's not like in every scene of the movie. But every scene she's in the movie, the focus is 100% her and everything she says or does is good. And it's not on a it's not just on a scripting level. It's like her performance is like incredible. And like Yeah, she pops. She pops hard. And like one like well one this movie has like all my crushes in it but two it's like i don't consider like joan cusack to be like a sex pot of an actress like you know like i like she's usually like playing like the best friend in movies is what i've like discovered Mm -hmm. she's great i love her so much it is interesting that they like cast her in this role like as the black widow uh right killer but it's so genius because like yeah of course you would just cast funny before you cast like attractive oh and thank goodness they did right yeah yeah, and I don't know who was, like, I've never looked up to see, like, who else was up for this role, but, like, it's really hard for me to, like, imagine anybody else playing it, like, the rest of the cast. I think I saw that maybe Marissa Tomei was up for it, which she is funny, too. Yeah, that would just be a but, different movie. Yeah. Because it's, like, she's great. Like, she's funny. Like, she checks both those boxes. Like, obviously, Marissa Tomei is a sex symbol, and she, te- she checks both of those boxes, but that's just a very different, I don't think Marissa Tomei's energy matches Barry Sonnenfeld's energy. I think that's why this casting of this movie is the casting of this movie is so good. Everyone is on the same page with Barry Sonnenfeld and Charles Rudd. Rudd yeah, let me look Rudnick. up the writers. Yes, Rudnick. Paul Rudnick. Yeah, it's Paul. Sorry, Paul Rudnick. Thank you. Paul Rudnick. Uh, yeah. yes. Charles Adams. Uh, Charles well, this Adams. This one that didn't didn't write the first one. Did not write the first one. Um, right. He, he think he might have had an uncredited like rewrite on it, which is why he how yeah he, he was a, with it. He was a script doctor for a little bit, but he's mostly a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, actually, the year that, that Adam's Family Values was released, he had a hit off Broadway a comedy about AIDS called Jeffrey. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting, especially given the kind of um, uh, undertones of critique against straight culture in Adam's Family Values. Um, well, yeah, so we'll we'll talk about Joan Cusack, but we gotta talk about the like the uh, that underlying theme of the movie because that's why this movie to me is like a masterpiece. Is that the underlying theme of this movie? It's about the insidiousness of normality in America and like the things we are willing to like push down and like you know like pave over. It's not even subtext in the movie. Like there's literally no. like a I mean besides the obviously the Thanksgiving Day play where they just say the things like like. Every like joke with like Christine Baranski and um, oh, what's the other camp count the actor's name? Uh, it's Peter McNichol. There's like the whole like thing where like they're reading off the campers' names and like they get to Jamal and they're like, is it Jamo? Jam- Jamal? Like and they're like and she goes, oh whatever. It is that and like obviously you have like Amanda and her whole family and then you have like Dave Crumholtz coming in who's like the one Jewish kid and the movie is about America and assimilation and trying to like keep that balance of normality intact at any cost, essentially. And then you have that reflecting off of like the fact that uh, Debbie presents as, you know, normal in quotes. And that's the way she's Mm -hmm. able to get away with so much. Whereas even though the Adams do get away with a lot, clearly they're like murdering and doing a lot of dark things, but like people have their eyes on them. No one has their eyes on Debbie. Yeah. Debbie's so pastel. Yes, exactly. It makes her subversive. Exactly. Which in itself, like now in 2020, like that play, it is funny how sadistically that kind of does play in 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, not, not that I have much to say, much more about to say Joan Cusack. I do know for a fact that 
uh, her monologue at the end about getting Malibu Barbie. Apparently, like mm-hmm. everyone on set was cracking up. They had to do the take <laughs> so many times, like because I because it's the difference between the way something is written, the way something is performed. And so, like, I don't think anyone because obviously the entire cast is there because everyone's strapped into those to the the electrocution machine. So it's like they're just watching her do this whole insane monologue over and over again, and probably just like losing their minds. It's great. Although, depending on coverage, I mean, she was shot in a one shot when she's doing that monologue so they may have not been depending on how they shot it i mean if they shot it with multi-camera then they might have been strapped in during that sequence but it could have just been joan with her setup doing that monologue depending on how they did the coverage but yeah like when she says that she's a ballerina barbie and she like stresses graceful elegant (laughs) it's such a quotable line I can't think of a single performance of hers that I don't love. Yeah. But this is just like special. It's just hard. I mean, not to not to just be on Wikipedia, but like it's hard for me to like think of another role in which she's like been this featured. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she's underutilized. Like, yeah, she well, she just plays supporting. Like that's usually her and granted, this is a supporting role too, but like she's usually just playing someone's friend is what I've just like, I've found out in like movies. Mm-hmm. She's always great. Yeah. She's in say anything. She's in high fidelity. Like she's in a brothers with her movie. I mean, the movies with her brother, uh, mm-hmm. she's in gross point blank. Uh, right. I don't know. Like, yeah, I she's don't know. In she's in six rock, which she's great. in. that I would say more featured in that movie. I would say that's like her second most like, Oh, she's popping in this. Yeah. She likes mm-hmm. seeing Stevie Nicks and it's like, yeah. beautiful. It can't be stopped. <laughs> The way she drinks her beer in School of Rock, she kind of like pulls it up and sips it like soup. Yeah, That's a beautiful performance choice. Apparently, I mean, she is, I think the other thing is that she's on a TV show that's been on the air for like 10 years. She's on Shameless. And I think that's probably, if you want a big dose of Joan Cusack, that's probably where you gotta go. I just don't think I could watch a TV show that's been on the air for 10 years at this point. (laughs) Seems like a lot of catch up. But yeah, she's probably We're in pandemic, you've got time. We are in a pandemic, and I do like William H. Macy, so I don't know. Maybe it's worth my time. Um, David, I just started Grey's Anatomy. You can watch Shameless. Oh, my. Elizabeth, what are you doing? (laughs) I'm not judging you, but what are you doing? I've lost my mind. 2020. (laughs) That show has been on for like 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think they're insane. on their seventeen. Maybe not that long, but yeah. I, I remember my friends watching that when I was in college. Yeah. I will say I've already finished season one because it was only nine episodes, which I was not expecting at all. Oh, that's yeah, that's not uncommon for network TV, though, to have like a really short first first season. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like a pilot season. So they're like, will this this be good? We don't know. But if it's good, we'll pick it up. That is, the only thing I know about Grey's Anatomy, I mean, my mom used to watch Grey's Anatomy a lot when I was in high school, which tells you how long the show's been on (laughs) the air. Uh, All I know is that like most of the cast has left except for the lead actress. And I think Mm -hmm. the rumor I heard is that they're just going to, like Shonda Rhimes and ABC are just going to keep the the show on the air as long as she wants to keep doing it. Yeah, that's, the thing is, it's such a big, like, I mean, obviously it was big when it started and people still watch it because they've been watching it forever. But like, I know a lot of the people that leave and like sort of some of the plot points just because it's like osmosis at this point i'm like i know that it's not a spoiler dr mcdreamy dies like i know because they made it like this huge thing like two years ago when they killed him off 
So I'm just like, whatever, I guess I'm just in it for like the guy who has nail gunned his head six times falling down the stairs. Yeah, I mean, but it's Ellen Pompeo. Like, it's her show, right? Like, it's it's yeah, great. She's, she's gray. gray. Okay. This is an interesting show. It's also just like, I've never heard that before. Yeah, we're just going to keep the show on, despite whatever its ratings are. Like, I don't think it's like a, it's doing, it does terribly or anything, but it certainly can't be like pulling in that many people. It's just like a, Shonda Rhimes has so much pool that she's just, mm-hmm. yeah, if she wants to keep doing the show, we'll just keep doing the show. This is interesting. Yeah. I mean. It's like days um, of our lives. <laughs> there you go. But yeah the yeah the movie like the movie itself like i already kind of did like my what like how do you guys read this movie i i mean part of my perspective i i wouldn't say it's more special than the first movie i love them both for different reasons i think they're doing different things but um yeah the cultural critique in the second one is just so undeniable that kind of eat the rich and and paul rudnick i mean he has you know, been open that there was kind of an anti-Republican intent with parts of the film. Um, This film, you know, it was made and released kind of on the heels of, um, you know, there was a recession in the early 90s. Um, You had the end of the, you know, Reagan and Bush years um, in 92, um, where, you know, a lot of gay men like still there's a lot of anger about those years because of the refusal to acknowledge the AIDS crisis um so I I don't think it's a coincidence that Rudnick had you know an off-Broadway hit that was about the AIDS crisis it was it was a comedy but um but yeah I mean it, it deals very explicitly with HIV and then the same year he's you know making uh writing a film that is lampooning that kind of you know, 80s conservative shoulder, you know, pad kind of culture. Um, it, it's, it's, it's not subtle. <laughs> yes. it, it's very, it's very much in the film. It's hard to deny that that's what the film is about. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I read an interview, like a anniversary interview with most of the cast and everyone except for Angelica Houston seemed to be like, I didn't read any subtext. <laughs> they were all just like, oh, I didn't notice anything. I was just in the Adams Family movie. And Angelica Houston was like, of course there was subtext. <laughs> so that's interesting kind of to be like, they're so en- engulfed in it, I guess, that it just didn't cross their minds or just like the like people in Hollywood in general's tendency to just kind of like not necessarily acknowledge things like that. Um that's interesting. I mean, I, I, I pointed this out when we did a Matrix episode, but like, that's always interesting. Because I don't know what the process of acting is like in reading a script, especially on screen acting. But like, you're obviously, you obviously memorize your lines and you like read the script to see if it's a good script and things like that. I just don't know how much of an actor's process is like needing to understand the subtext of something to give a performance for it. Mm-hmm. And I always bring up the Lawrence Fishburne talking about the Matrix thing, <laughs> example, which is like, Everyone on the Matrix talks about like how they didn't understand. It was a very risky movie, and they didn't understand it. And they, no one like could like. They was like, I couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. And then in the same interview, they they cut to Lawrence Fishburne. Fishburne, he's just like, oh, I knew exactly what it was about. It makes total sense to me. <laughs> and so like, <laughs> I I just and maybe that's just part of his process of like, I'm playing this type of character, which means like I need to understand all these like different layers to this. Mm-hmm. It, but otherwise if you're if that's if you're playing something that's a little more tertiary you're just like a 
I'm playing this type of character. I just need to learn my lines and then be done with it. So it is interesting when things like that do happen and that Angelica Houston's the only... Well, that's interesting to me only because if they watch the movie, once again, it's not even subtext. It's just text at points. Yeah, (laughs) right. She gives the entire Thanksgiving Day speech like about the genocide of the Native Americans. Like it's not even, it's not subtext at that point. Uh, right. And you have the, you know, like you pointed out, you have the creepy blonde kids, the, all the rich kids juxtaposed with everyone who is literally not blonde or able-bodied. Yes. Like, you know, the all of the outcasts have dark hair. Um, they're multicultural in a way that the, you know, the blonde kids in the camp aren't. And you have, you know, like a wheelchair, a kid who uses a wheelchair. Um, I mean, it's just some of them are short, (laughs) whereas all the blonde kids are like literally the same height, pretty much. Like all the girls are average height. All the boys are average height. They're like little village of the damned carbon copies of each other. Yeah. I mean, even, and then like, even Peter McNichol and Christine Baranski, like, look like siblings. It's like very funny. I, this is why I think where Barry Sonnenfeld's influence comes in for the casting is he's such a visual person. Mm-hmm. So I just assume that like when he casts people in movies, he's mostly thinking about what is their face going to look like on camera and how does that play against everything else? So it's very funny that he casts these two actors who I don't think are related in any way. And just, yeah, they kind of look like brother and sister. It's funny. Like they're just the male and female version of each other. But there is an irony to the film being about, you know, this kind of like anti, um, kind of anti-consumerist in a way with Debbie's character. And then, um, you know, critique of the kind of like white conservative view of American culture and history with the camp scenes. But then at the same time, you know, we talked about that Paramount had that big deal with McDonald's in the marketing of the film everything about the marketing of the film is just very standard capitalist synergy you know synergistic um you know toys i think there was a video game i mean you mentioned the cartoon um there's just it's just very classic you know cross-platform marketing yeah well, which so is so capitalist it's very capitalist but it's so funny because the Adams themselves are so ambivalent about the money they have like they truly don't care that they're rich the most important thing to them is actually family which is and they're the ones treated like weirdos it's like it's a that's the that's the gag they don't really care that they're rich as long as they have each other they're fine they if there had been an Adams family three I'm sure someone would toss around the plot idea of what happens if the Adams go broke I'm sure that was mm-hmm. probably like bandied about in like a writer's room somewhere uh and that's what makes Debbie such an interesting villain is because while they respect her hustle as a psychopath, they don't respect the fact that she is a materialist. Are there, well, one, I have, we'll do final thoughts, but I have one question and it's about the ending of this movie. And this is something that just happened to me today. My understanding about the ending of this movie is that when, uh, when uh, Dave, Dave Crumholtz and uh, Christina Ricci are at uh, Debbie's grave and the hand reaches up at the end, I took it at face value that it's Debbie's hand because it's the Adams family and I that is just what it do. But a lot of people, but the Wikipedia says that it's probably cousin it and that she's playing a prank on him. Oh no, thing, it's thing. Sorry, thing, sorry, get in thing mixed up yeah. so much. Cousin, it's thing, yeah, that it's thing. What are your thoughts? This is not an important question. I'm just kind of curious what you think every time you watch this movie because this, it never even occurred to me that it could be thing. 
I I mean, I think I'm with you. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Dang. But I mean, it makes sense. It makes more sense than her like coming up from the grave, except that it is the Adams family. And that's something that you could see happening. I guess the only reason I'm, I feel dumb asking this question is because I forget she is literally turned into a pile of dust when she gets electrocuted. <laughs> and the only thing right. that remains are her credit cards. <laughs> yeah, we see we see her cremated essentially, and and yeah. we've also seen um, in the first film we saw Grandma Ma did a joke with Thing where she pretended like you know she, the the woman with the red hair whose name we can't remember at the moment yes. that um, they were doing the seance and Grandma Ma's like my hand she took my hand and it's Thing's <laughs> hand like we've seen yes. pranks with Thing's hand before. Um, and so I think it's it's reasonable to assume that it's thing that we're mm-hmm. that we're watching. You are yes, you are correct. But it, it's but just, it's also a reference to the end of Carrie, so that kind of opens up the possibility of um, mm-hmm. you know perhaps a more supernatural necromancy kind of interpretation. Yeah, it is funny the the, the logic of the movie. They do kind of skirt around how supernatural the like they they do a pretty good job of like leaving how ambiguously supernatural the Adams family is the only thing you know about the Adams family is that uncle fester is unkillable that's the only thing where you're like we well, can't really explain that away because he should have died like he should be electrocuted and dead uh you never know like grandmama is a, is a witch and like they talk about you know communing with demons and things like that all the time but you never see it so i don't know i like a little bit of ambiguity as to like how much supernatural things around the Adams family mm-hmm. um but yes, also just to give this actress the respect she deserves, it is uh, Dana Eve, uh, Ivy. Uh, that's the woman's mm-hmm. name we cannot remember. I've seen her in a million things, I feel like. Yeah, What's oh, she's the character's a- name since you have Wikipedia up. Her character's name is Margaret. Margaret, that's right. Margaret. That's what I was wondering. Yes, Margaret Alfred Adams. Miss Cousin It as Wikipedia. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> yes, M- Mrs. Cousin It. <laughs> uh, yeah. Also, I mean, we didn't really get to talk about uh, Thing's performance. Great performances always. Uh, I mean, I always like the Thing sequences in both the movies. Like, I like all the, like, Tex Avery, Rube Goldberg, Rube Goldberg machine logic of, like, this hand getting into shenanigans. And I mean, another logic of the Adams Family that I enjoy is that People are weirded out by them, but not as much as they should be. Right. As in, like, mm-hmm. people are freaked out by a thing, but no one has a heart attack in questions <laughs> like their existence. They're just like, ah, I'm more, they're more startled by thing than they are scared of it. Just think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, <laughs> I think we should, I think we should wrap this up. Guys, do you have any final thoughts on Adam's family values? I do. There was a thing I had on my list that I just want to make sure is out there in the world on this podcast. So originally, Michael Jackson was supposed to do the theme song for Adam's Family Values and um, did write the song. It's called It Is Scary. You can you can listen to it. It's on his Blood on the Dance Floor album from 97. He actually did release it. Um, but while they were shooting the music video, the allegations... The initial allegations came out in August '93, and they had to pull the they had to pull him from the project super quick. It's very um, 
no one was really pretty, no one was really open about whether he left on his own accord or whether Paramount forced him to leave because of a morality clause. But we know he left the project at the last minute and then we got that terrible tag team song. It is. The take on Whoop, There It Is, which is. A song that they, I would make a joke like they wrote in five minutes. They didn't write it. I'm assuming they just walked into the studio and just recorded it. So, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that we acknowledged and then that, you get that little and then you kind of get a fortuitous little joke in the movie because you do which i don't think they wrote i mean i can't be positive but it's like you get the joke with them in the cabin and there being the michael jackson poster and them like grimacing at it and like right which you know which had to have had to, would had to have been filmed because they filmed in february so that was filmed before there were any allegations against Michael Jackson because the allegations did not come out until August of that year. So yeah. they must have been close to picture lock because they released in November. Yeah, so, that, that would make a lot of sense. So it, yeah, it is like a happy accident almost. Like mm-hmm. which one? Like that's a joke that pre-allegations would have played. A di- it would have played a different type of funny. Like like haha, they right. don't like Michael Jackson. That's weird. But like mm-hmm. then after allegations, you're like. Yeah, they're weirded out by it for different reasons. Um, yeah. uh, Elizabeth, any final thoughts? Um, uh, my final thoughts are that we didn't talk enough about pubert. Um, and I just ab- like I actually lose my mind every time pubert is on the screen. I mean, played by two twin girls, so I, uh, but it's a boy. <laughs> the, well, technically, it's not a. It's but it's it's an Adams. It's an Adams. It's an Adams. Adams. They, they do use no gender. It's an Adams. <laughs> I think they use he pronouns for so the baby on occasion. Yes. Um, but with babies, I mean, babies can play either gender. Anyway, yes. probably anyone uh, can play either either gender. But with babies, you you can't tell. Yes. Uh, love pubert. Uh, <laughs> the mustache is amazing. It's incredible. <laughs> he's such a knowing child such a knowing child like Mm -hmm. very smart like i like the fact that like they know what to do after they get yeeted into space crash down into the thing like it doesn't seem like it's just curiosity that they kick up the power lines and stick them together like it seems like they know that they're going to murder this woman yeah in a playful way which makes you wonder you know what were wednesday and pugsley's first murder was it equally as playful and justified (laughs) was it as young i would love to know like this is one of those things where i would love like even if they wrote comic books set within this continuity of the adams family uh, there should be an expanded universe I would oh, I'd lose my mind. <laughs> I would be yeah. the one running that like Wikipedia. <laughs> um, somebody's gonna somebody's gonna tweet you guys and say, "Oh, there is," and send you a link. Which, by the way, if there is, please tweet at David and Elizabeth and yes. send them the link to that. Yes, please don't tweet at Laura. Only tweet at me and Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, you can tweet at me. That's fine. I just oh, okay. you know it's your <laughs> podcast, so I thought you know. Uh, my final thoughts on the Adams family is that. Uh, a great movie i think everyone should watch it it like i said to me it's just this and planes trains and automobiles are the only two real thanksgiving movies uh in my opinion if you if you've put this one off for a while give it a look um and yeah like i may like i tease that like i have like a decent casting of who i would do for Adam's family i won't mm-hmm. reveal the whole thing but like one of the cast is there was a adam's family cartoon uh animated movie that came out last year uh that had Oscar Isaac as Gomez Adams, which I'm like, 
you cast him in the lot. He's the he, you cast him as live action Gomez. You don't cast him as just a voice. It was the most <laughs> inferior. Like when it happened, I like cool. They announced that they were making an Adam's Family movie. They didn't rec. They didn't specify that it was going to be animated. And then a lot of people like me had been like fan casting him. It was like you got to get Oscar Isaac as Gomez. Like that's the one that like you just mm-hmm. it's it's locked in. And then they were like, okay, we cast him, but it's an animated movie, and it's not. We're not even using his likeness. We're using the Charles Adams animations and by all accounts good movie like very cute like it's just a different animal than this movie but mm-hmm. if i ever made this movie i think i would just uh, if i made a live action Adam's family movie i'd just be like oscar please we'll give you as much money as you want please come back <laughs> please reprise this role also you carol um also bill Hader would play uh would play uncle fester that's the only other like major oh that's yeah. fun casting i like, I like that. that yeah, yeah. Uh, I couldn't, I truly can't decide who I'd have play Lurch, but it doesn't matter because you don't need anyone, you don't need a giant anymore. You could just cast somebody and then just movie magic them into being tall. In a not, like you could do forced perspective if you wanted to. Like it, it, But it, it's it, more fun if you find a giant. Yes, I just had struggled thinking of like famous tall actors with who have the right mm-hmm. shaped head to play Lurch. <laughs> it's, it's like, I don't know, like who's all, like, I don't know. It, like essentially they hit Jack, they hit gold when they cast Carol in that role, in my I opinion. I mean, yeah. I feel like he said that people would confuse him for Ted Carroll and he just took it. He's like, finally, I can say that I was Lurch and not someone else. <laughs> um. But yeah, that's the Adam's Family Values. So we're going to wrap this up. Uh, Laura, please promote yourself. Where do you want people to find you? What do you want people to watch? Where? What, what would you like to tell the people? Yeah, you can find me at Dual Projection on Twitter and Instagram. And please read my posts on the IU Cinema, A Place for Film blog. Yes. And you can find both of us on December 14th. I think I got it right. I just talked 15th, about how... 15th, December 15th. 15th. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> December 15th. You can find us both December 15th at the Virtual Movie Roundup, along with other IU Cinema blog contributors. Uh, and it's going to be a good time. Uh, I think our picks are still under wraps from the public, but, you know... Oh, we can't talk about them? I don't know if they we're supposed to talk about it or not. Like, we now know like each other's. I don't know. That's up to you. As a teaser, my pick is Delicious. It would make you hungry. Mm. Uh, uh, my my pick is a director is made by a director I mentioned earlier on this podcast, and is one of their most underrated movies. It's a masterpiece. Ooh. So check those out. Uh, it's pretty easy. It's pretty easy to guess what this movie is. Anyway, um, Elizabeth, where can people find you? You can find me anywhere you want to look. Uh, at my name, Elizabeth Rell, I'm very easy to find, for better or worse. Uh, you can find me at Samurai Flicks on Twitter, on Letterboxd, and Instagram at Robert Dolphy. Uh, look forward to my next physical media review, <laughs> middle of this month. Uh, trudging through, not trudging, I'm having a good time watching those movies I've been sent this month. Uh, so, yeah, good time. Uh, and with that, I think that's going to do it for us this week on A Place for Film. Uh, I am unfortunately going to end this episode with the terrible tag team song, which should be playing right now. <laughs> uh, uh, an affront to mankind. Uh, yes, but uh, that's going to do it for us on A Place for Film. Uh, we'll see you at the movies. Good night. Good night. Back again, the Adam.
Adams family. New baby in the house makes three. Wednesday Pugsley lurch you ring. Fest up grandma and thing. Wait, can't forget cousin it. Tag team rips another party hit. It's